the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon. I'm just having a conversation with the engineer here. And then the show just kind of broke in. Good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Now, I have to explain, I was gone yesterday because given events that took place about a year ago, I have to have medical treatments from time to time. And yesterday I had a procedure to determine how well I'm doing. I think I'd mentioned that I had developed pancreatitis from which I have been completely healed. I had uh, developed diabetes from which I am no longer a prisoner and I've been freed. Uh, But they have to check certain things on a regular basis. And I also get some treatments on a regular basis for other related things. Anyway, I had to go yesterday for a, uh, an upper endoscopy, which took the whole day I was expecting. In fact, I had originally thought I'm just going to come into work afterward. I tend to underestimate how these things go. But I went in, they checked my pancreas. And because there was a little something on it um, back when I was ill and uh, things looked really good, they said that I won't have to have it checked again for a couple of years. But that's why I was gone yesterday. And periodically, I'm out of the office. And it's kind of frustrating. I went from being perfectly healthy and requiring no medical attention of any kind, you know, the regular checkup you have once a year to now having these um, periodic checkup on things to make sure other things aren't developing. I'm grateful for health insurance. I'm grateful for medical care. I'm so uh, thankful for the the trained men and women who work in hospitals and doctor's offices. And I'm I'm tempted to gush every time I go in and just say, you know what? I appreciate that while other people were paying uh, playing baseball on the field, you were actually studying and learning how to do this. And you have been willing through some really tough circumstances to continue to work in this field despite your own vulnerability. You know, I just kind of want to gush. I try to be very grateful and cooperative and friendly and cheerful and all of that. But I just am extremely thankful. But most of all, I'm just grateful that the Lord has granted me improved health and that I'm able to continue um to do what I love to do. And so uh, they put a scope down my throat uh, and I won't even go into where that thing went because I don't really want to know, but uh, <laughs> I'm a little scratchy today. So there may be some coughing and wheezing. Uh, I am accepting applications for pity. And if you'd like to you know, feel sorry for me, please do and send me a card and note, a letter, some money, whatever you want to do as I'm recovering. Anyway, today we're going to wind our way through uh, some of the news headline stories, but I'm going to share a conversation I had with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are the co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. The book is published by uh, Regnery. They'll, uh, that conversation will be featured in the second hour of today's program. Also, Brother Andrew, some of you re- remember that name. He has passed away. He was known as God's Smuggler. He smuggled Bibles into communist countries. He was the founder of Open Doors. He's died at 94. We'll talk a little bit about his life and legacy in the second hour of today's program as well. But first, the headlines. You know, the good news is 
The day is coming where there'll be no headlines other than Jesus reigns and we're having a meeting over in this third quadrant of heaven. We're just going to worship for several dozen hours. But for now, we'll cover the headlines. Taking aim, Ian struck Cuba as it headed to Florida's Gulf Coast. It has now hit landfall as a Category 4 hurricane, and the damage is extensive. Um, the events that take place after the hurricane, the storm surge is what's uh, primarily of concern at this point. Uh, as they're waiting out, what happens next? In fact, during this phase of a hurricane, there's very little that can be done for those who may be stranded or in uh, in desperate need. Uh, because first responders cannot respond. That will come later. But for now, people are riding out the storm quite literally. They're also concerned about, um, I just lost that, tornadoes uh, that may also be a part of this event. And uh, they're they're uh, calling this um, one of the worst of its kind in terms of the length of time and the, the extensive damage that they anticipate will be the case. Well, communist connection, Republicans have sounded the alarm over a China government linked farmland by uh, near a U.S. air base. We've talked about that before, but now members of Congress are uh, sounding the alarm in a hospital nightmare. A doctor has been dubbed a medical terrorist after being caught on camera, allegedly tampering with IV bags. Winter is coming and American families are bracing for hefty heating bills again. Fancying seeing you here, the Democrat lawmaker says she missed a vote over COVID-19, but Instagram tells a different story. Beware of what you post. Uh, The representative said she couldn't attend the House vote due to COVID-19, but was in France on a planned vacation. Silent on support or lack thereof, Democrats continue to make abortion a campaign issue, but remain mum on restrictions. And by the way, it has made its way down the list of most important issues for American voters to about seven. Neo-fascism is winning big. An MSNBC host um, made a radical claim about Italy's first female prime minister and exposing agendas parents have taken to social media to chat about school controversies. Citing remarkable incompetence, Larry Kudlow says woke progressive economics have failed the U.S., Well, the FBI is sidelining investigations into child sexual abuse in order to pursue the January 6th probes and is inflating the number of domestic extremism cases across the country. So say Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee claiming in a letter earlier this week citing whistleblowers. The committee's letter was spearheaded by ranking member Jim Jordan and was addressed to FBI Director Christopher Wray. It comes on the heels of another committee letter that cited whistleblowers claiming the FBI was pressuring agents to label cases as domestic violent extremism, even when they didn't meet that criterion for the definition. One whistleblower cited in the letter was told that child sexual abuse material investigations were no longer an FBI priority and should be referred to local law enforcement agencies due to the Bureau's focus on January 6th, the letter claimed. Such a posture is not only a dereliction of the FBI's mission to investigate violations of federal laws, but it's a grave disservice to the victims of child sexual abuse and other crimes that do not advance the FBI's leadership's political agenda, Jordan said. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but uh, we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Sam. I made a horrific, frightening, troubling face, and he was stunned. Stunned, I say. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 21 minutes after 
four o'clock, although I'm convinced this clock is not correct. Is that true, Sam? My clock says four twenty one twelve. Is that incorrect? That is incorrect. It's the one clock I have in this studio. When you look up, all you see is this clock and it's not correct. I'm very sorry. I'm embarrassed. This is why I I'm look humiliated. At my clock. I'm befuddled. Anyway, maybe we can get that fixed because I just announced the time and it wasn't correct. You but know, does anybody really know what time it is? Does well, I've got a care? clock in front of me, but I can chase down the engineer if you'd like. <laughs> All right. We'll take care of that another day. But I digress. Uh, taking a look uh, again at the headlines, Senator Marco Rubio and 13 other GOP senators are proposing legislation that would make dealing fentanyl linked to a death a felony punishable by life in prison or a death sentence upon conviction. Now, the, the death penalty isn't applied in very many places these days. But nonetheless, this is what they're proposing. Fentanyl is killing Americans at a record high, Rubio said. He's out of Florida. In a prepared statement, this deadly drug is widespread throughout our country and has left no community untouched. This bill would make drug dealers pay the price for selling deadly fentanyl. It's designed, of course, to be something of a uh, deterrent. If passed and signed into law, the Felony Murder for Deadly Fentanyl Distribution Act would make distribution of the drug that results in a person's death a felony murder punishable by either death or life in prison. Drug overdose is now the leading cause of death for adults 18 to 45, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In 2020, fentanyl was involved in 75 percent of the 91,799 fatal drug overdoses in America. And of that 91,799, each was a distinct individual created in God's image whose life ended because of this drug. Anyway, we'll follow this to see if anything uh, comes of it, but wanted to mention it. The COVID-19 vaccines are the product of novel technology known as mRNA vaccination. On paper, The concept of an mRNA vaccine has been around for some time, though the medical technology has been developed only within the past few years. So when COVID hit, it presented a significant opportunity for the scientific community to make the new vaccine concept a reality. Well, the CDC has now quietly updated their COVID vax myocarditis data. Within a year of the coronavirus hitting the U.S., Big Pharma had produced an mRNA vaccine. And due to a global pandemic with millions having been sickened and dying, dying rather, Donald Trump's Food and Drug Administration fast tracked the normally years long review process for new drugs or the treatment technology and authorized its distribution. Meanwhile, other possible treatments for those sickened by COVID were widely labeled as unfounded, dubious, or outright fake, and soon censored as dangerous misinformation by big tech fact checkers. Well, the only legitimate solution to the virus that mainstream media talking heads, leftist politicians, and the thought police declared acceptable was the novel mRNA vaccines. There were some uh, some uh, lawmakers also on the right. So it wasn't just leftist politicians. It, it went across the board. Well, some of that misinformation that people, including some leading medical professionals, were posting had to do with observations of an apparent negative side effect in healthy younger people who had received the COVID vaccine. Well, that apparent side effect was a significant uptick in the number of otherwise healthy individuals suffering from myocarditis. Mark Alexander wrote about it in the early part of uh, 2021, actually mid-2021 in June, as concern of a possible casual link between the COVID vaccines and myocarditis spread, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention um, 
initiated a study of U.S. individuals ages 12 to 29 who contracted myocarditis after having received the mRNA vaccine. Well, that study followed more than 800 patients and found that the vast majority of patients still suffering myocarditis symptoms 90 days after receiving the vaccine were 17 years old and male. Well, the study also concluded that the mean... um, Weighted quality of life measure was similar to a pre-pandemic U.S. population value and significantly higher than an early pandemic U.S. population value, as most patients had improvements in cardiac uh, diagnostic markers and testing data follow up. Well, according to the CDC's vaccine safety data link, the number of reported cases of myocarditis in males aged 16, 17 Followed, uh, following rather the COVID vaccine was 14 out of 102,091. And in males 12 to 15, there were 31 reported cases out of a total of 206,000 after receiving the second dose of the vaccine. And while these numbers might appear rather insignificant in the world of vaccine standards, they represented the proverbial red flag that in the past would have gotten distribution potentially stopped for further study. But of course, this was a global pandemic and the novel mRNA vaccines were the only acceptable solution or so said the established uh, class. Well, the CDC's current numbers on the seven day risk of myocarditis are now three to five times higher for young men than what the CDC was reporting this time last year, uh, observes Dr. Tracy Hong, who was uh, one of those medical professionals who was blacklisted as a kook. It now turns out that the CDC's current study data comports with her research as well as the research of other medical professionals who were seeing the same phenomenon. Follow the science. Well, the trouble is the CDC is now only quietly accepting legitimate data that was previously derided as misinformation. Of course, that will never happen again. Well, that means no public vindication for those who were ringing the alarm bells over the rate of myocarditis in vaccinated young people, even though they were deemed dangerous because they were questioning the only vaccine Solution narrative coming out of the administration. Well, this is a textbook example of why authoritarian government is so dangerous. Harken back to my conversation yesterday. It allows for no serious questioning of the uh, declared solution. And in the meantime, many individuals are either forced or deceived into needless suffering. Also, the enlightened uh, can assert they are acting in the people's best interest. And they, of course, will determine what that interest is. Vast swaths of Americans have been silenced or vilified as dangerous and uncaring because they voiced objections to a novel vaccine. And these were scientists, qualified people. Well, furthermore, uh, as Hong observed, if you hadn't been, vi- if uh, we hadn't been vilified as anti-vaxxers spreading mis- or disinformation, how would the uh, conversation around minimizing the chance of this adverse event have changed? And how many cases of myo or pericarditis in young males would have been prevented over the last year? Indeed. Well, the one-size-fits-all solution to any crisis almost always results in failure, especially when it comes to people's health. It's ironic that those uh, most proudly endorsing diversity want none of it when it comes to entertaining differing thoughts and perspectives. Diversity is only useful when it is a means to a particular end. Well, this past summer, the University of London conducted a mega study that debunked the theory of chemical imbalance in the brain being the cause of depression. Well, the study has direct uh, implications for the prescription of of, uh, antidepressant drugs, namely that these antidepressants may not actually help a depressed person. 
Antidepressants, rather than helping balance the chemical imbalance, got patients hooked on psychotropic drugs that sometimes have dangerous side effects. An article for Newsweek, an altogether unlikely source for this sort of skepticism, weaves together a convincing and scientifically backed tale. It features Dr. Mark Horowitz, the main protagonist of the Newsweek article. Uh, He was galvanized into action after he tried to warn himself or rather wean himself off of his antidepressant uh, Lexapro or Lexapro. Uh, Many popular antidepressant drugs fall under the category of SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Roughly 43 million Americans were prescribed these drugs as of 2019, though with pandemic anxiety and depression, that number is likely much higher. Well, Dr. Horowitz is one of the authors of the mega study conducted by the University of London. His contribution was on the efficacy of SSRIs versus placebos or sugar pills. He found that the antidepressants were more effective only 15% of the time. It further underlines the point that SSRIs, drugs that have horrible withdrawal symptoms such as brain zaps, severe depression, panic attacks, and disrupted sleep, are not the solution they promise to be, so says the article. It's uh, pharmaceutical uh, companies that are the main pusher of the drugs, as Dr. Horowitz commented. They've made us all believe that normal aspects of the human condition are a medical illness called uh, called major depressive disorder, that normal reactions to difficult situations are a chemical brain problem that needs a medical solution. They convinced people they are so um, they are very mild drugs that are very easy to stop. But none of it is true. You can read more in the Newsweek article, but rather interesting. The conclusion, his study and he uh, discusses in that article that sugar pills are almost as good as antidepressants. Now, don't do anything with what you're taking until you speak with a medical professional, read the article and think this whole thing through, but it is an interesting thing to consider. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, it's 4.35, the correct time. Thank you very much. Yes, it much. is. All right. Well, this morning, the Pacific Legal Foundation filed a lawsuit against President Biden's illegal student loan executive order. The case was filed in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Indiana. The core of the complaint is that the administration created new problems for borrowers in at least six states that tax loan cancellation is income. People like plaintiff Frank Garrison will actually be worse off because of the cancellation. Indeed, Mr. Garrison will face immediate tax liability from the state of Indiana because of the automatic cancellation of a portion of his debt. Well, these taxes would not be owed for debt forgiveness under the congressionally authorized program rewarding public service. Mr. Garrison and millions of others similarly situated in the six relevant states will receive no additional benefit from the cancellation, just a one-time additional penalty. No surprise, it was expected that there would be there would be legal challenges. Well, signaling weakness, a Japanese analyst weighed in on President Biden skipping Shinzo Abe's funeral. The president's decision not to attend the former Japanese prime minister's funeral on Tuesday sent a weak message to China as tensions rise in the region. A Japanese political commentator, Yoko Ishii, told Fox News Abe, 67, was assassinated on the 8th of last month while delivering a campaign speech in Nara, Japan. He was a stalwart supporter of U.S. foreign policy throughout his tenure as Japan's longest serving prime minister from 2006 to 2007 and again 2012 to 2020. Well, Ian has uh, uh, become a Category 5 hurricane hitting Florida. They braced for a direct hit. 
They are currently under that storm. How long it will um, how long it will last is unknown. But the storm surge is the greatest concern at this point. Joe Manchin ditched a proposal after making a deal with uh, Chuck Schumer. It's coming back to haunt him. Will coerce and intimidate. Vice President Harris expressed support for Taiwan and torched China while addressing Navy sailors in Japan. Is that redundant Navy sailors? In an energy crisis, Europeans are resorting to burning trees after green policies and the Russian war have left countries hobbled. So just a glimpse of your future. Free spoke. It's a new alternative to Google, putting an emphasis on free speech. We'll follow and see how that develops. We've got to win. Senator Amy Klobuchar suggests voting Democrat will help stop hurricanes. That's why we've got to win this, she said. Wow. Stop hurricanes. Um, The Bay Area teachers say that California does not value educators and warning of the dangers of co-sleeping. The American Academy of Pediatrics advises against co-sleeping or bed sharing with babies. The Congressional Budget Office says President Biden's student loan handout could cost $400 billion if it stands legal challenge. The president moved to cancel up to 10000 in student loans for many borrowers, 20000 for others. It will cost more than $400 billion, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. The CRFB also included in its estimate about $120 billion in costs to taxpayers from another element of the president's executive order on income-driven repayment, which the CBO said it excluded. CBS News says the cost of the debt forgiveness plan has sparked a debate among some Republicans and those without college degrees who have argued that the plan isn't fair to people who didn't go to college, but yet whose tax dollars will support the effort. After the report was issued, Republicans decried the plan's price tag, citing the CBO's forecast with Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona writing on Twitter that it was even more expensive than we initially thought. Even so, the CBO's estimate is lower than an earlier forecast from the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Wharton budget model, which pegged it at $519 billion. Sadly, I don't feel all that much better. A hotly debated bill. <coughs> Excuse me. This is where the pity would pour on. A hotly debated bill to fund the government includes $12 billion for Ukraine. If passed, that bill would bring Ukraine aid up to $60 million since the start of the war. That should be billion. Anyway, the federal government runs out of funding on Friday and this week should set up a hot debate over billions more in Ukraine aid, a pipeline payoff deal, Afghan refugee assistance and money to help pay for sky high heating bills for low income families. Tennessee lawmakers are looking to tighten up legislation on child gender transitions at Vanderbilt Hospital. The Washington Examiner reports that this week, a video surfaced from Vanderbilt University Medical Center in which Dr. Shane Taylor was caught on tape saying in 2018, starting the 1st of January of the previous year, according to the Affordable Care Act, insurance carriers are mandated to cover medical expenses for trans folks. Taylor went on to note that some of Vanderbilt's financial uh, uh, financial folks looked at how um, how much each transgender patient uh, could bring into the hospital and found that just looking at top surgery, that's top surgery, not even including bottom surgery, uh, each transgender patient would be extremely profitable. It's a lot of money, Taylor said. These surgeries make a lot of money. So much for children's well-being. The surgeries make a lot of money. 
This week, a groundswell of lawmakers demanded an investigation into the pediatric transgender clinic, one of two transgender clinics at the medical center. After an expose on transgender surgeries from Daily Wire host Matt Walsh earlier this week, a bill that would have banned gender surgeries, puberty blockers and cross sex hormones for minors died in the Tennessee legislature after it failed to garner enough Republican support. Shannon Brandt released on 50, has been released rather on $50,000 bail after fatally striking a Republican teen with his SUV because he was a Republican. Uh, Mr. Brandt, who is accused of fatally hitting the 18-year-old with his SUV, is not under house arrest and has no curfew after posting a $50,000 bond, according to the court documents obtained by the, uh, Fox News Digital. The 41-year-old man who allegedly admitted to murdering a Republican teenager who's uh, over politics... Um, at the start of the week, said this week in court that he did not want to lose things in his life due to uh, the bond because of the charges. He admitted to striking the pedestrian with his car because he had a political argument with the pedestrian and believed the pedestrian, this is the teenager, was calling people to come get him. Brandt admitted to leaving the scene of the incident and returning shortly after where he called 911. And he's out on bail. Two Democrat-run cities are turning to civilians Amidst policing shortages and violent crime spikes, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, is adding dozens of civilian employees to its police department amid an ongoing staffing crisis, according to police. The New Orleans Police Department is hiring 50 to 75 civilians amid a staffing crisis to reduce the workload on officers and decrease the police response time. The superintendent, Sean Ferguson, said in a Thursday press conference, civilians will respond to calls that do not require police presence and answer the phones and take some of the workload from administrative police officers. And some civilians will be trained to take over detective work, according to Ferguson. That's a definition of desperate. Senator Kirsten Sinema is uh, standing up for the filibuster. Uh, the senator defended her support for the filibuster on Monday, despite near unified opposition from the rest of her party, taking the absolute view that it should even be resor- uh, restored to judicial nominations. Cinema uh, made the comments during a Q&A session following a speech at the McConnell Center for the at the University of Louisville. Not only am I committed to the 60 vote threshold, I have an incredible unpopular view. I actually think we should restore the 60 vote threshold for the areas in which it has been eliminated. Already, we should restore it, Cinema said, to cheers from some attendees. Progressives are realizing the term Latinx, which has, by the way, been rejected by the majority of Hispanics, isn't so inclusive. Town Hall reports that it's uh, just the latest episode of the Wokesters making a full circle progression that results in eating their own Latinx is now being declared a problematic term after the same woke virtue signalers foisted it on those it's supposed to describe. According to Salon, it's now time to stop using Latinx if you really want to be inclusive. Well, the term reeks of condescending academia. It's uh, hard to pronounce. It runs contrary to the entire gendered structure of the Spanish language. Hispanic groups uh, have been discussing abandoning the term because it alienates non-transgender Hispanic voters, which is to say the vast majority of Hispanic voters. In July of this year, Argentina and Spain released public statements banning the use of the word Latinx or any gender neutral variant. Both governments reason that these new uh, terms are violations of the rules of the Spanish language. 
Huh, and apparently it matters. Whistleblower Edward Snowden has been granted Russian citizenship. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree on Monday granting Russian citizenship to the former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden. Snowden fled the United States, was given asylum in uh, Russia after revealing classified documents about the U.S. government's mass surveillance programs in 2013. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, my conversation with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, their book, the book they co-authored, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. That's coming up in the second hour. We'll also reflect on the life and legacy of Brother Andrew, who smuggled Bibles into communist countries and was the founder of Open Doors. He died and is, um, well, we know where he is. He was uh, 94 at the time of his death. Well, a former Walmart executive envisions a $400 billion utopia. It only take $400 billion to create a utopia. Well, the billionaire Mark Lohr, Uh, has outlined his vision of a five million person new city in America and appointed a world famous architect to design it. Have you ever heard of that new heaven and new earth? Uh, Anyway, that's a whole nother thing. Now, just uh, he just needs somewhere to build it and a four hundred billion dollar (laughs) fund. Well, he doesn't have the money or the place, but it's going to be really amazing. The former Walmart executive last week unveiled plans of um, Telosa. That's the name of the town, a sustainable metropolis that he hopes to create from scratch in the American desert. Sounds lush and verdant. Well, the ambitious 150,000 acre proposal promises eco-friendly architecture, sustainable energy production, and a purportedly drought-resistant water system in the desert. A so-called 15-minute city design will allow residents to access their workplaces, schools, and amenities within a quarter-hour commute of their homes. Although planners are still scouting for locations, possible targets include Nevada, include Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Arizona, Texas, and the Appalachian region, according to the project's official site. Wow. You going to be moving there, Sam? No, not so much. Um, The cooldown reports that by 2030, the team hopes to have a diverse group of 50,000 people living in Telosa. It plans um, uh, for that number to jump to 1 million by 2050, 5 million by 2070. A public green space will stretch throughout the spine of the city, giving 5 million people easy access to nature. The plan boasts futuristic organic skyscrapers, zooming monorails, community parks, and bustling ADA-accessible courtyards. Utopia, also known as Tolosa. Wow. He's a visionary. I'll give him that. Floridians are under an evacuation order as the hurricane has made landfall and doing its damage. More than 2.5 million Floridians, fellow citizens, were under evacuation orders or warnings with a sprawling storm uh, making landfall as a Category 4 hurricane. Let's remember them in prayer and be standing by when they need help because they will. Democrats are looking to turn Hurricane Ian against Governor DeSantis. As Rahm Emanuel once said, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. As Hurricane Ian barreled toward Florida, some 
Um, Members of the media and of one party appeared almost giddy at the prospect that the governor's uh, failing high profile, uh, that he would fail this high profile test. So far, he looks pretty good. Florida emergency management teams were busy Tuesday warning residents to batten down the hatches and, if necessary, evacuate coastal areas ahead of the storm's arrival. Meanwhile, Politico appeared to frame the hurricane as a test that would ultimately determine whether or not DeSantis deserves the level of notoriety he's already achieved. So this was simply a test. The S&P 500 and the Dow continue to sink. The S&P 500 fell deeper into a bear market on Tuesday after uh, setting a new 2022 low, while the benchmark 10-year Treasury yield continued to climb to levels not seen in the last, or at least in a decade. The broader market index fell to a low 3,623.29 during the session, which broke below the previous bear market intraday low. A signature shortfall signals victory for Arizona school choice advocates. The teachers union backed campaign to overturn school choice expansion in Arizona appears to have flopped, according to think tank projections relying on preliminary vote tallies under the expansion of Arizona's universal voucher program known as the Empowerment Scholarship Account or ESA enacted in June. Over one million K through 12 public school students in the state would become eligible to receive vouchers to fund their attendance at private charter or home schools up from the 11,000 students who are currently eligible. Anti-school choice activists submitted 8,175 petition sheets, according to the Arizona Secretary of State's office. But it appears it was insufficient. Well, Joe Manchin has caved to bipartisan pressure to remove his reforms from the spending bill. Following that growing pressure from both groups, Manchin called for the Senate Majority Leader to cut the uh, permitting reforms from a short-term funding bill just before it was scheduled to go up for a vote on Tuesday. Manchin said in a statement that he didn't want to put government funding at risk and added that a failed vote on something as critical as funding the uh, government and comprehensive Um, uh, permitting reforms only serves to embolden leaders like Putin who wish to see America fail. A first lawsuit has been filed to stop Biden's student loan forgiveness. And California's Proposition 1 is a disguised proposal for late-term abortion. The California governor and his huddle from, well, somewhere you don't want to go, legislature anticipated that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. In a rush to show how much they loved abortion, they quietly crafted the vaguely written uh, Proposition 1, which states the state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom in their most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose to refuse contraception. Make no doubt this is the birthday abortion amendment and the most radical legislation attempt in the history of the United States, whereby a child can be exterminated up until the moment of birth. President Biden looks to end hunger in the U.S. by 2030. Dealing with inflation might help. The Associated Press reports the Biden administration is laying out its plan to meet an ambitious goal of ending hunger in the U.S. by 2030, including expanding monthly benefits to help low-income Americans buy food that's way too expensive because of other policy decisions that raise the prices. But I digress. The administration, in a plan released Tuesday, is also seeking to increase healthy eating and physical activity so that fewer people are afflicted with diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and other diet-related diseases. It said it would work to expand Medicaid and Medicare access to obesity counseling and nutrition. The documentary Uncle Tom 2 exposes the lies that harm blacks in America, and it's now out. Charlie Kirk talked with Brandon Tatum, who... 
about Uncle Tom, too, which exposes um, the BLM as uh, perpetuating a victim mindset to the black community and cause them to hate America. Brandon Tatum says, so we noticed that the advent of Marxism and this social ideology pushed us more toward the government and away from God and away from the family. And you could uh, look at the statistical data. You see that there's uh, there are fewer uh, young people being born into married families, more being born out of wedlock than we see in the 30s. When you look at the government assistance programs and the victimhood that's been expressed by these uh, fake leaders, we see more of it now than we've ever seen in the history of black people post-slavery. Just one excerpt from the film. By the way, I would recommend it. I thought the first of the um, two parts was very well done. Italy elected a new right-leaning prime minister. The globalist left is having a conniption fit over the Italian people electing for their new prime minister, the right-leaning nationalist. Uh, Maloney's uh, party, the Brothers of Italy, won the day with 26 percent of the vote, which combined with the other conservative parties secured a coalition totaling 44 percent in Italy's uh, parliamentary system, easily making the 45 year old mother of the nation's first female prime minister. Rather than celebrate this, the left media is uh, falsely portraying her as the second coming of the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. Milani said of herself, I am a woman, I am a mother, I am an Italian, I am a Christian. No one will take that away from me. Labeling her as far right and fascist, a left wing ideology, is ironic, given the fact that one of the the primary reasons Italians voted for her is due to the previous government's draconian and authoritarian response to the covid pandemic. Furthermore, thanks to European green energy pipe dreams, Italians are suffering under the spiking costs of both electricity and fuel. Under Italy's left-leaning government over the last several decades, the economy has failed to significantly develop the export industry, which provides the only positive GDP contribution to the country's shrinking economy. Milani, the new prime minister, aims to reverse this trend and tackle the nation's ballooning public debt that currently stands at nearly 150 percent GDP, the second largest in the eurozone. In her campaign, she blasted the European Union's woke ideologies and its bowing to LGBT lobbies regarding the fascist smear. She stated the Italian right has handed fascism over to history for decades now, unambiguously condemning the suppression of the of democracy and the. Um, ignominious anti-Jewish laws. She was just the latest European country to elect a right-leaning politician as Europeans are declaring their opposition to the left's vision of a globalist future, which goes a long way toward explaining why the left media has smeared her as a fascist. Well, we are um, out of time. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. And when we return, a conversation on the book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, as we all know by now, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Many of us still marvel that it happened in our lifetimes. It does change things, but it does also present for us significant challenges. Well, just in time for the Supreme Court's official overruling of Roe versus Wade, pro-life scholar Ryan T. Anderson and pro-life journalist Alexandra DeSanctis released the ultimate guide, and I use that word deliberately, the ultimate guide to the pro-life policy issue titled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. 
It is captivating. It reframes the ongoing debate in the current climate with the truth. And this um, that this 50, uh, nearly 50 years experiment uh, with um, unlimited abortion in America has harmed everyone, even its most passionate proponents. Tearing Us Apart is a comprehensive guide. It's made for everyone because the Supreme Court decision affected everyone all of our lives. Well, Ryan T. Anderson is a Ph.D., the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment and Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's a graduate of Princeton and Notre Dame. He is the St. John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas. He lives on a small family farm in Virginia with his wife and their three children. Alexandra DeSanctis is visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, is a staff writer at National Review, and is widely published journalist covering politics, abortion, the pro-life movement, elections, and religion. She, too, is a graduate of Notre Dame and a former William F. Buckley Jr. Fellow in political journalism at the National Review Institute. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, and we are delighted to have both of you with us today. Welcome. Great to be with Thanks you. Thanks for having us. This is such a significant moment because while Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the decision making on the subject of abortion has been returned to the people, the nation is grappling with how to move forward. And for many pro-lifers in particular, uh, the challenge for us is to rethink the the direction that we ought to go. Let's begin, as you do in the the book, uh, talking about the major harm that abortion uh, produces. It, you might assume your first chapter is titled Abortion Harms the Unborn Child. You might assume that we could at all at least agree on that point. But in 21st century America, in post-Roe America, we don't even agree largely on that point. So let's begin there. Sure thing. I mean, so unfortunately, in 21st century America, there are science deniers. There are people who deny the basic scientific reality that the entity in the womb is an unborn human being. There are also still in 21st century America, equality deniers, people who deny that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with their right to life. Um, So the the, the more sophisticated pro-choice activists will concede the biological point, right? They don't want to be science deniers. So they'll say, yes, it is an unborn human being, but then they will deny the equality point. And they say, well, but it's not equal to us. It's not yet a moral person. This is the Peter Singer style um, arguments that you get from, you know, one of the, form, the, the professors at my alma mater at Princeton, um, they can't affirm the declaration. They don't really believe that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with an inalienable right to life. And that's where we are in 21st century America, right? People either denying the science about the unborn child or the morality, the equality. And what Alexandra and I do in that very first chapter of the book is we just marshal the evidence. We go through the science that shows that it's a human being. We go through the philosophy um, that demonstrates that it should be treated equal because that unborn human being is our equal. And then we look at the politics of the law, why it's not an overreach of the government to protect the natural right to life of every human being born and unborn. Would you like to comment on that as well, Alexandra? Well, I think Ryan covered it uh, pretty pretty successfully there. But uh, the last point that we, we do cover in that chapter that I think is important to note is um, kind of the, the way in which abortion supporters claim that even if an unborn child is 
a, a human person, a human being and a, a human person, somehow um, a mother's right to her own body or a woman's right to her own body trumps the child's right to life. And this is just the wrong framework, right? We should be thinking about the duties that parents have and a mother has, and a father has to care for their children. Not This is not a competition of rights. And, and the fact that a child is, has come into being inside his or her mother is not licensed to kill that child. It's a, a requirement to care for him. Interestingly, we have come to accept the notion, and I'm speaking broadly of the culture, that women need abortion to be equal and empowered. And you argue in the book that neither thing has been accomplished. Rather, there has been harm that you outline in detail uh, as a consequent. Talk talk a bit about that claim that uh, in order for women to be equal to, to men in our culture uh, and empowered in our culture, she has to have the freedom to destroy uh, the child developing in her in utero and how that accomplishes exactly the opposite. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a pervasive claim. I think this is the, the predominant argument in favor of abortion. And it, it's so prominent even that the Supreme Court repeated this very idea in its decision in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, essentially upholding the, the Roe v. Wade decision. The court said we can't overturn Roe, at least in part because women have come to rely on abortion. Women can't participate in the, the social or economic life of our nation unless they have abortion as part of helping them order their reproductive lives. And this is a, a really damaging notion for women um, for a number of reasons, you know, not least of which is that abortion actually harms women. Um, but the idea of abortion harms women, too, right? The notion that there's something dysfunctional or disordered about the female body, about pregnancy, about, you know, the female mode of reproduction, this takes the male body as the norm and as the ideal and treats women as though there's something wrong with them or as though to kind of participate in a man's world, women have to just get rid of whatever the, the consequences might be of sex and, and act as though they were never pregnant uh, in order to be able to kind of compete or be on equal footing with men. We're told that, um, Abortion is first and foremost a matter of female autonomy, that it is a benefit to her. And again, in the book, you go in great detail. And I've been in the pro-life movement for decades. This is the best I've ever read on the subject. But you go into detail about the the cost and the, um, the tremendous message it sends to a woman to suggest that she must fight against, she must reject uh, her own offspring in order to pursue her own interests and the, the tremendous toll that takes certainly on her, but for the broader culture, the, the father, the broader family and so on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we, and, and first you, uh, thank you for saying um, that um, Alexander and I worked hard to try to make this um, a very clear, compassionate and persuasive compiling of all of the evidence, all of the arguments. Uh, and so it's gratifying to hear you um, say that about the book and, and what we wanted to show is that there's a better way of understanding what um, women's equality should look like. Um, that what we got for the past 49 and a half years, a, a version of equality that says in order to be equal, you have to deny your most distinctively feminine attributes, right? The, 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 the God-given blessing that you can carry a child in your own womb, that to be equal to men, you have to deny that. You have to either sterilize your body or kill your offspring. That's a false vision of equality. And a true vision of equality, it's a colleague of ours at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki, who talks about there's an asymmetrical nature to human reproduction. And true equality takes that asymmetry seriously. Rather than trying to force women to live as if defective men, it says the, the female way of being human is equal to the male way of being human. And we can structure our laws 
We can structure our marketplaces. We can structure our education system, including higher education, in ways that take both ways of being human seriously. One of the things that you argue in the book, uh, post-abortion, that women risk emotional and psychological damage. We're being told in the broader culture that there is no fallout. This is such a benefit. It's such a relief. It opens such a broad uh, set of options for a woman who has chosen to reject her child in favor of her own autonomy, that there is no emotional or psychological damage. And women who uh, who dare to speak up. Um, are simply denied, um, first of all, being heard and that they exist. Yeah, this is a really a damaging aspect, I think, of the pro-abortion rhetoric, right? Because the, the argument now for abortion is we have to celebrate this. This is a social good. It's not we don't talk about it as safe, legal and rare anymore. We're supposed to celebrate abortion and, and act as though it's always this wonderful solution for women. But the fact is, that's actually not most women's experience of abortion. We know uh, from statistics that most women choose abortion because they feel like it's their only option. They're not choosing it because they think it's great or a perfect solution. They're choosing it because they're, they're desperate, essentially, or they're not get, you know, getting support from the father of the child. They're not getting support from their own family. And we know that after the fact, a lot of women do suffer, like you mentioned, from psychological after effects, whether it's you know, uh, guilt, regret, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide. Uh, at elevated rates after having had an abortion. And these women are, are simply ignored or even attacked uh, when they, they share their experiences because we're all supposed to believe that abortion is this wonderful solution. You also write about the fact that abortion harms the family, the relationship between a mother and a father, the extended family, and so on. Does that make a difference when we're talking about the autonomy of a single woman being able to determine her own future? Yes. I mean, what what many women report is that the reason they feel constrained, uh, pressured, unable to carry the child into the world, but forced by circumstances to think that abortion is their least bad option is precisely because they don't have the support of a marital partner, an extended family. Um, uh, A really interesting uh, statistic is you were a child um, uh, conceived inside of marriage. You have a 4% chance of dying by abortion. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40% chance of dying by abortion. Uh, another way of putting uh, the statistic is that um, of all women who um, seek abortion, only 14% of them are married. By contrast, 86% of women who have abortions are unmarried. Marriage is the best protector of the unborn uh, because what marriage does, it, it ensures that that man is committed to that woman before children are brought into the world. Uh, anytime you're contemplating an abortion, a child has already been brought into the world. The only question is, will that child be able to exit the womb and you know, enter the, the, the visible world to the naked eye? Marriage is the best protector of unborn children. It's also an institution that really helps um, uh, uh, allow mothers to care for their children and to bring them um, into the next stage of their, of their lives. We're talking this afternoon uh, with Ryan Alexander and Alexandra uh, excuse me, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are the co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read in this post-war era, whether you are pro-abortion or pro-life, um, I would highly recommend it. We're going to take a quick break. We will return in a moment and continue our conversation. So do please stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSantis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. At the time the book was being written and uh, just about to be released, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. It could not be more timely, giving us a perspective on where we go from here. Uh, and I so appreciate the uh, the effort that they put into writing uh, this uh, manual, I would say, for moving forward. Uh, let me ask you about the decision the Supreme Court made. At the time, as I mentioned, you were writing this book. It wasn't clear which direction the court was going to go. They obviously overturned Roe versus Wade, and there's been a lot of discussion since about what the Constitution actually says about abortion. Those who support uh, abortion rights throughout uh, a pregnancy believe that there is a constitutional right because the Supreme Court said there was. Others who have recognized that there is no constitutional right rejoice that they finally got it right. Your thoughts on the decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, sure, so there's nothing... Was... You can take it, Ryan. <laughs> so, okay, I was going to say, there's nothing in the Constitution that even remotely could be construed to protect our right to choose to kill an unborn human being. Uh, whether it was the original Roe v. Wade decision that said it was a privacy right, or then the Casey decision that said it was a liberty right, um, or then you know, the, 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 the hope for academic argument was that it was an equality right. This was something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, had embraced later in life and many academic defenders of abortion. So, well, you know, whether it's privacy, liberty, or equality, all of those rights, those are real rights, but they all have limits. And neither privacy nor liberty nor um, equality justifies killing another innocent human being. And so our Constitution, uh, rightly understood, has never protected a right to abortion. The Supreme Court simply got it wrong 49 and a half years ago. It repeated the error um, uh, 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And all the court has done in the Dobbs case is admitted its mistake and overturned Roe and Casey. Now, there are some pro-life scholars, and, and Alexander and I are sympathetic to this argument, although we think you know, more research needs to be done, and the current Supreme Court isn't there yet, that argue that rightly understood the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which prohibits any state from denying equal protection of the law to any person, that that should include the unborn uh, human person. Uh, I don't think the current court, uh, the votes simply aren't there, which means that in the meantime, we need to pass laws at the state level protecting unborn babies. We need to pass laws at the federal level. Uh, We need to work to either have a constitutional amendment or to have justices that interpret the 14th Amendment that way, because ultimately we can't be half uh, abortion, half uh, pro-life in the same way that we couldn't be half slave, half free. As Lincoln taught us, a house divided cannot stand. So eventually we need to come to a national But we're going to start by doing this state by state, right? We're not there yet. So we need to be um, making progress at the state level uh, today. You write in the book, Tearing Us Apart, how the pro-life community can respond to our current uh, situation. And we'll perhaps get into that a bit later, but it's an important part of the book. Uh, but but let me ask you, um, the damage that has been done uh, to the medical profession in this nearly 50 years of abortion on de- demand before Roe versus Wade, of course, abortion was legal in some places, including my home state, regrettably, my home state of Oregon and other uh, other states. But what has abortion on demand uh, done to the medical profession in terms of perverting its primary purpose and reducing the unborn to something less than worthy of the kind of medical attention that one presumed the oath required uh, preserving? 
Yeah, so the, the problem, of course, with abortion is that it's not actually a healthcare procedure, right? It's a, a procedure that kills an innocent human being. There are two patients involved in every abortion. There are two human beings there, the mother and the child, and abortion targets one of those human beings for death. And it's not medically necessary. It doesn't cure any disease. It doesn't solve any ailment. It doesn't treat any problem. It just kills a child because a woman doesn't want to be pregnant for whatever reason. And so at that point, once you have a, a country where this is accepted as a, a form of healthcare and where some number of doctors are willing to perform this procedure, even though it's not medically necessary, uh, that perverts our understanding of what healthcare is, and it perverts our understanding of what a doctor is. So now, instead of being a, a medical professional who's using his talents uh, to cure and heal, a, a doctor becomes a, essentially a technician for hire who's using the tools of his trade to, to kill. Um, and so that, that has um, very unfortunate downstream effects on, on all of our, meds, our uh, medical field. You know, it's rather interesting in the book, you offer some examples of medical professionals who practiced abortion um, some uh, for many, many years before coming to the realization that they are destroying a human body. It's it's difficult to imagine that you couldn't uh, that you would be involved in the practice and not recognize that until there's an epiphany at some point. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, how some of these medical professionals professionals who have had an about face? Uh, after having performed abortion for a long period of time and what the mitigating circumstance is that reverses their perspective on what they have known from a technical and medical standpoint all along. Sure. I mean, perhaps the most famous example is Bernard uh, Nathan. Yes. Who is, you know, one of the founders of NARAL pro-choice, um, you know, one of the largest uh, abortion activist groups uh, and abortion uh, providers uh, in the country. And um I think Bernard Nathanson himself performed several hundred, if not thousands, abortions. He also oversaw the performing of several thousand abortions in clinics that he oversaw. Um, I don't remember right now what the exact catalyst was um, in his case. I know one of the other stories that we tell in the book uh, was an abortionist um, whose daughter tragically died. And then when he returned to work and he's in the middle of performing an abortion, you know, he kind of breaks down. He realizes, I just killed someone else's child. Um, and this was after having spent a couple months off mourning the loss of his own child. Um, which is simply to say that, you know, there's a law written on the heart. Um, people know the truth, especially the, the abortionists, uh, because, you know, they, they, they physically, they see the unborn child that they, uh, in some instances, are literally tearing apart limb by limb. Um, and then something needs to prick their conscience. It, it, it's it's not enough just to know the facts. There also then, it seems, needs to be something that alivens them, awakens them, not just to a fact, but also to a value, to a moral norm, to a moral truth. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a religious conversion. Sometimes the religious conversion comes second, right? They first are converted to the pro-life cause, and then they start asking deeper questions. Well, what is it about life that explains the dignity and the sanctity? And then they arrive. Uh, at the conclusion of God. But, you know, every individual is unique. And so no two stories are going to be the same. Um, Yeah. How has a a legal abortion harmed our politics and the rule of law? Well, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Some of the the main points we make in the book, I'll I'll focus on on one uh, main one, I guess, is the way that uh, the legalization of abortion has really broken down our uh, our political parties, and, and in particular the Democratic Party, 
Um, you know, before Roe was decided, there was such a thing as a pro-life Democrat. Um, a huge number of Democratic politicians consider themselves pro-life, even, you know, voted pro-life. Joe Biden, even right after Roe v. Wade himself, voted uh, in favor of a bill that would have essentially undone what had happened in Roe. And we know kind of where he ended up. So um, there's been a, a big change on this in the Democratic Party. And I think we're all worse off because we have a, a, one of our two major political parties uh, that embraces abortion on demand for any reason. So much so that, uh, you know, you have Democratic presidential candidates now telling pro-lifers not to vote for them uh, because that's how, how uh, committed they are to abortion on demand, um, even though most Democrats, most Democratic voters are not where the party is on this issue at all. Only about 18 percent um, of Democratic voters support abortion on demand until birth. And yet the party has, has fully embraced this um, this position. And it, I think we're, we're all worse off because of this. We'd be a much better country if, if voters had a meaningful choice between two political parties, neither of which was was committed to this kind of injustice. Mm -hmm. Uh, One example in a speech at the NAACP annual convention in Atlanta uh, earlier this month, the vice president uh, compared pro-lifers in the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs uh, to the slaver, a slave owner of the Old South. Uh, She said our country has a history of claiming ownership over human bodies. Uh, Her historical reference was accurate, but the analogy was completely reversed. Uh, again, an example of the misunderstanding of what abortion on demand actually is. She got it exactly wrong. Yes. I mean, imagine the the claim, you know, if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Or the claim, I'm personally opposed to slavery, but politically or publicly, I'm in favor of your choice to have a slave. I mean, that's what's at stake when someone says, oh, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm you know, in favor of choice, or if you don't like abortion, don't don't have an abortion. Um, the idea that um, the the decide in this debate that's in favor of protecting the right to life of the unborn child is actually the analog to um, the slave owner is just ludicrous. And there have been a variety of academics trying to claim that the Thirteenth Amendment um, is actually the, the justification for uh, abortion. Um, And they just seem utterly unwilling to acknowledge that there's already a moral relationship that has taken place. There's already a relationship between that mother and that child. And it's not, you know, involuntary servitude to say that no one, including mothers, can kill their own, uh, can kill anyone. Right. I mean, it's one thing to say we shouldn't kill strangers. It's another thing to say mothers shouldn't kill their own children. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick uh, a quick break. Again, we're talking about uh, the fabulous book that should be in your library if you would like to be effective during this season, post-Row, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. My guests, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read and I would highly recommend it. Uh, on the subject of abortion in America post-Roe. They cover how abortion harms children, how it harms women and their families, uh, how it harms equality.
Equality and Choice, one of the uh, champions of abortion on demand, uh, how it harms medicine and the rule of law, politics uh, and the media and popular culture. And importantly, uh, what the pro-life movement should do next, which is precisely the question I want to put to our guests now. Given the situation we find ourselves in, I think many folks thought once Roe versus Wade is overturned, our work is done. We recognize now that that is not the case. What should the pro-life movement do next? Well, we talk about this a bit in our in our conclusion. Well, at length yes. in our conclusion, and we don't give um, too many specific prescriptions. But uh, the main thing we call for is, first of all, charity among pro-lifers and, and prudence as we disagree and discern what the next right steps are. Right, because what's what's possible in one state is not always going to be possible somewhere else. There are a number of states at this point that have almost total protections for unborn children from the moment of conception. And there are a lot of states where, unfortunately, those laws just aren't politically feasible right now. And so there has to be some kind of room for, for incrementalism and for understanding that we have to change hearts and minds even as we push for more and more protective laws. Um, so that would be, a, I think, a major part of the strategy. I know that you write about pregnancy resource centers. They have been the subject of uh, violence and opposition of late since the uh, early leak of um, what was likely to be the overturn of Roe versus Wade. What do you say about these pro-life centers that in many cases outnumber abortion clinics across the country uh, and the value that they and the role that they will play moving forward in this post-Roe era? These pregnancy resource centers um, are a godsend to thousands of women, uh, women who don't want abortion, women who want to bring their children um, out of the womb and into the world and they get no assistance from people who claim to be pro-choice. Right? I mean, I think the attacks that we've seen of pregnancy resource centers really put to lie the claim that the other side is pro-choice. The other side, unfortunately, the activists on the other side is very much pro-abortion. Right? That's what that's the choice that Planned Parenthood will help you with. They won't actually help you if you're planning to be a parent and you have an unborn child in your womb who you want to uh, bring to term. The pregnancy resource centers do that. Um, and they exist merely to serve those women who voluntarily come to them, seeking their assistance. And that's why it's so utterly grotesque, if not downright satanic, that we've seen the attacks on them over the past several weeks and several months since the opinion was leaked. Uh, and, and I think it's also particularly um, uh, um, just unacceptable how unwilling law enforcement has been to go after the people perpetrating these crimes uh, and really you know, protecting the rights, the freedom, the safety of these pregnancy resource centers to minister uh, to women who are seeking their assistance. In the book, Tearing Us Apart, you make the point that abortion is more than a religious issue. But what would you say to those who argue that it's Christian to support women's right to abortion? We're hearing that a lot from lawmakers, but we might hear it a little closer to home as well. Well, I find this argument very absurd because it usually comes from the same people who who try to claim that being opposed to abortion is just uh, forcing our religion on others. And they're very opposed to that. But then suddenly they also want to have it both ways and and argue that uh, supporting abortion is Christian. So there's clearly a double standard here. But uh, more to the point, perhaps it's, of course, not Christian to support killing innocent human beings. Now, it, it is Christian to support women in difficult circumstances who are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy, who need help. Uh, and, and support as they, they parent or, uh, you know, as they welcome their child. But killing that child is never actually a Christian solution, no matter what situation a woman might be facing. Uh, you know, telling her that it's a, a solution of some kind to enact violence, lethal violence against her child is, is deeply unchristian and, and deeply wrong.
I like the phrase that you use throughout the book, and to say I like it is a bit odd, but um, lethal violence, to to subject a child to lethal violence, which is a perfect description of what abortion is. One of the points you make is that we don't really talk about abortion. We use euphemisms, but we don't talk about what actually happens, and we try to distance ourselves from that because I think to confront it face-on is perhaps too painful for most people. There are some, of course, who might be the exception. Uh, how how important is it for us to understand precisely what it is we're talking about, what happens in uh, these situations, and whether or not we, f- we frame our uh, opinions based on euphemisms or what's actually happening? Oh, it's vitally important. This is why the other side speaks in euphemism. It's why the other side um, doesn't actually speak clearly and truthfully about what's going on. It's why the other side right now, as we're speaking, is lying about ectopic pregnancy care, lying about miscarriage care to claim that pro-life laws uh, would prohibit care in these cases. It's why they use euphemisms like sex-selective abortion rather than, you know, using accurate language. This is uh, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex. I mean, and it's just so um, fascinating to me that the voices that are loudest in condemning racial discrimination, sex-based discrimination, disability-based discrimination, they go silent or even worse, they cheerlead when it's lethal discrimination on the basis of race, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex, lethal discrimination on the basis of disability, which is what we see when we have uh, more black babies being aborted Mm -hmm. than born in New York City. We have millions of missing girls across the globe. We have countries like Iceland claiming to have eradicated Down syndrome, when in reality, they have eradicated people with Down syndrome. They didn't find a cure for the genetic disorder. What they've done is successfully diagnosed and killed all of the um, children diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, so it's very important that we don't fall for the euphemism um, that the other side uses to talk about these issues, that we speak the truth clearly and compassionately. Well, I appreciate, too, that you go into the, the history and the founding of the abortion movement, that the eugenicist uh, perspective has been successful even in our century in that there's a disproportionate number of Hispanic and African-American babies who are subject to abortions in this country, uh, an inconvenient truth that, uh, again, is overlooked or minimized because this is creating opportunity for for black women moving forward. Yeah, this is a very disturbing argument. And, and you see, um, in fact, in the, the wake of Roe having been overturned, abortion supporters making the argument that this is disproportionately going to affect uh, non-white populations and women. And, and my first thought is, well, if that's true, shouldn't we be supporting these women, right? The idea that kind of ramping up abortion numbers or, or building more abortion facilities in these neighborhoods is not actually a solution. If, if women uh, of color are feeling like they have to choose abortion at higher rates, then that's a, a serious problem in our society. And we should be working to support those women, not just kind of helping them access abortion as much as, as, as uh, you know, Planned Parenthood would like them to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what can pro-life, and we've touched on this a little bit, but pro-life advocates do to make it easier for women to choose life. We've talked about the pregnancy resource centers, but for the individual, what do you recommend? Because uh, I think when they read the book, they're, they're going to want to be proactive and not just better in informed. What can we do to help support women? There's an endless variety of things that we can do. And it all depends on what our station in life, our vocation in life is. I mean, for some of us, it's going to be prayer. Actually, for all of us, it should be prayer. (laughs) Um, For many of us, it's going to be a financial contribution. Uh, Look up your local pregnancy resource center and start making a monthly contribution, perhaps volunteering your time at that local pregnancy resource center. 
Um, perhaps it's becoming a foster parent. Perhaps it's becoming an adoptive parent. Uh, perhaps it's, you know, writing that letter to the editor, writing the op-ed for your local newspaper. Perhaps it's lobbying your state representative. It's going to um, the state house and speaking with your elected representatives to make sure that they pass the good laws that will be protecting the unborn babies. Maybe it's working on paid family leave or maternity care. I mean, there's a variety of uh, both kind of supply side and demand side uh, public policies that we can be looking at. The supply side being the abortionists, uh, the people who supply the lethal action, the demand. Why do women have a demand? Why, why do they think they need abortion? There are public policies that can address that as well. Um, so there really is an, you know, an infinite number of things uh, readers could do after um, finishing the book. And a lot really just depends on what their station in life and their vocation in life is. Well, and again, I want to emphasize that at the conclusion of the book, you offer a number of uh, things to think about in terms of how we can uh, contribute to this new um, this new landscape post row in a state like Oregon. It's definitely an uphill battle, but one that we've been engaged in for for decades and will continue uh, in other parts of the country. There may be um, a restriction on abortion that we could only have dreamed of years ago. So there's plenty of work to be done. And it begins, as you pointed out. Uh, with prayer and then being willing to uh, to move forward in action. I, again, want to thank both of you for the uh, clearly the hard work that you did in putting this book together. And I would suggest that our listeners get a copy of the book, read it and um, purpose to move forward in favor of life. Again, the title is Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Brother Andrew, as he was uh, widely known, who smuggled Bibles into communist countries, founder of Open Doors, said he wasn't an evangelical stuntman, but a faithful Christian following the lead of the Holy Spirit. Well, he passed away. He was 94. His name, Anne Vanderbill, he was a Dutch evangelical known to uh, Christians worldwide as Brother Andrew, the man who smuggled Bibles into closed communist countries. Well, Vanderbilt, she became famous as God's smuggler when the first person account of his missionary adventures, slipping past border guards with Bibles hidden in his blue Volkswagen Beetle, was published back in 1967. God's smuggler was written with evangelical journalist John and Elizabeth Sherrill and published under his code name, Brother Andrew. It sold more than 10 million copies and was translated into 35 languages. Well, the book inspired numerous other missionary smugglers, providing a funding to Vanderbilt Ministry, Open Doors, and drew evangelical attention to the plight of believers in countries where Christian belief and practice was illegal. Vanderbilt protested that people missed the point, however, when they held him up as heroic and extraordinary. I am not an evangelical stuntman, he said. I am just an ordinary guy. What I did, anyone can do. And just as a side note, those of you who've listened to the program for any length of time might recall back in the day, I smuggled Bibles into Vietnam and China on several occasions with the Bible League. Uh, Most of the time, it was a fairly easy undertaking, but I was caught once in Vietnam. Um, I had one bag full of my clothes, and they suggested you mix your clothing with the Bibles, and the other had both Bibles and clothing. And uh, they opened the bag. There were lots of people waiting in line. 
discovered the Bibles, and one of the guards called the other over to determine what to do with me and the Bibles. Now, the truth is, for Westerners who are traveling into the country, you're likely to be deported, but not much else. You're not going to be jailed or put in prison. You're just going to be sent back home. So I was concerned what was going to happen next. I started praying under my breath and asking God for wisdom and what to do in response to what was happening. Well, the two guards called over a third and then a fourth, and by the time it was all over, at least my part of it, uh, there were several of them. They were all talking very quickly. It sounded like they were speaking loudly, even arguing, but I didn't know what they were saying, so I didn't know. I just took my bag, closed it up, and walked out. I was going to blend into the crowd. Now, I'm in Vietnam, and quite frankly, it was a little challenging to blend in with the crowd, but I had <laughs> I had... I was one of God's smugglers at that moment, and I guess I had some cover. I just simply slipped into the crowd, met with the others from the Bible League, hopped on a bus, and that was that. So I kind of get it, what he's saying. Not extraordinary, just trying to do something for believers in a communist country. I also remember at the under, other end of that line uh, being part of a gathering in which believers who had been praying some for decades for a copy of the scriptures of their own received them and wept uh, uh, upon receiving their Bible. So anyway, back to Brother Andrew. No one knows how many Bibles Vanderbilt actually took into Poland and Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, East Germany, Bulgaria, and other Soviet bloc countries. And the decade before the success of his book, God Smuggler, forced him into the role of figurehead and fundraisers for the organization Open Doors. Estimates have ranged into the millions. A Dutch joke um, popular in the 1960s said, what will the Russians find if they arrive first at the moon? Brother Andrew with a load of Bibles. Well, he, um, for his part, didn't keep track and didn't think the exact number was important. The one to whom it might be most important already knows. I don't care about statistics, he said back in 2005 in an interview. We don't count, but God is the perfect bookkeeper. He knows. Well, Brother Andrew was born in the Netherlands in 1928, the son of poor blacksmith and an invalid mother. He was 12 when the German military invaded the neutral country in World War II, and he spent the occupation, as he recounted to John and Elizabeth Sherrill, hiding in ditches to avoid being pressed into service by the Nazi soldiers. When famine hit the Netherlands in 1944, he, like so many Dutch people, ate tulip bulbs to survive. Well, after the war, he joined the Dutch army and was sent to Indonesia as part of the colonial force attempting to quash the Indonesian struggle for independence. He was excited about the adventure until the shooting started and he killed people. By his own account, he was involved in the massacre of an Indonesian village, indiscriminately killing everyone who lived there. He was haunted afterwards and by the sight of his uh, young mother and nursing a boy, Uh, Killed by the same bullet, he started wearing a crazy straw hat into the jungle, hoping it would um, get him killed. Well, he adopted the motto, get smart, lose your mind. Well, he was uh, shot in the ankle. He started reading a Bible his mother had given him during his convalescence. After he returned to the Netherlands, he started compulsory, um, compulsively rather, going to church and in early 1950 surrendered himself to God. There wasn't much faith in my prayer, he uh, confessed. I just said, Lord, if you will show me the way, I will follow you. Amen. That's about as simple as it gets. Well, Brother Andrew committed his life to the ministry and went to Scotland to study at the Worldwide Evangelism 
uh, Crusade Missionary School in 1953, speaking to Christianity Today back in 2013. He remembered one critical lesson from a Salvation Army officer who was teaching about street evangelism. The older man said most would be evangelists give up too soon, too soon rather, since the Holy Spirit has only prepared the, uh, the heart of one person out of 1,000. Instantly, my heart revolted. I said to myself, what a waste. Uh, Why go and spend your energy on 999 who were not going to respond? God knows it and the devil knows it. And he laughs because after the first 1000 people, I give up in despair. Well, he determined he would ask God to guide him to the one person who was ready for the gospel. Instead of spending his time calculating and strategizing, he would follow the guidance of the spirit. What a novel idea. Well, a short time later, he felt God speak to him through Revelation 3 two. wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Well, he understood he was supposed to go support the church in communist controlled countries. In 1955, he took a government controlled tour of Poland, but snuck away from the group to visit underground groups of believers. On a second trip to Czechoslovakia, he saw that churches in communist countries needed Bibles. I promised God that as often as I would uh, lay my hand on a Bible, I would bring it to these children of his behind the wall that men built. Uh, He recalled to every country where God opened the door long enough for me to slip through. Well, in 1957, he made his first smuggling trip across the border of a communist country, entering Yugoslavia with tracts, with Bibles and portions of Bibles hidden in his blue Volkswagen. As he watched the guards search the cars in front of him, he prayed that he would later call the prayer of the God smuggler. Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture that I want to uh, take to your children across this border. Uh, When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray that you make eyes seeing blind. Do not let the guards see these things. Uh, You do not want them to see, end quote. Well, he followed his early success in Yugoslavia with more trips and eventually enough uh, even uh, smuggled Bibles into the Soviet Union. He recruited other Christians to help him and they developed strategies for avoiding the attention of the border guards and secret police. Sometimes the smugglers would travel in pairs disguising as honeymooners. Um, Sometimes they would use out-of-the-way border crossings. They would experiment with different ways of hiding scripture in their small, inconspicuous cars. Always, they would follow the leading of the Spirit, and no one was ever arrested. Bible smuggling was criticized by a number of Christian organizations, including the Baptist World Alliance, the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board, and the American Bible Society. They considered it dangerous, and it was, especially for the Christians living in the communist countries, and in effect, uh, and they considered it ineffective. Sensational stories were good for raising money, the critics alleged, but little else. Well, Cold War historians have debated the impact of Bible smuggling in communist regimes. Francis Raska writes that it was probably significant, but evidence of the exploits are shaky, prone to exaggeration and personal aggrandizement. There is at least some evidence that the KGB kept close tabs on the van that uh, Brother Andrew and others um, were... uh, involved in activity with and may have had informants inside his network, according to Raska, but that's unconfirmed. After the success of the book, he's uh, his smuggling to other less famous. Uh, um, he, he he left smuggling rather to less famous Christians. He shifted his attention to fundraising for the organization, the ministry opportunities in Muslim countries and elsewhere. I believe everyone is reachable. People are never the enemy, only the devil, he said. Bin Laden was on my prayer list. I wanted to meet him. I wanted to tell him who is the real boss of the world. 
Well, he told lots of people. He made scriptures available, and I can't imagine that putting Bibles into the hands of people who otherwise would not have access to them is a bad thing, but God will sort all of that out. The bottom line is, this man, as we knew him, Brother Andrew, has gone on to his reward at 94, known in this life as God's smuggler. We're out of time. I do want to thank uh, Sam Maupin for engineering, James Blend, who's out ill, for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>